Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're pleased to welcome Felix Hassa. He is an entrepreneur as well as a Young Voices contributor. Felix, welcome to the program. Tell us just a little bit about yourself. Thank you so much for having me. So my name is Felix. Um, uh, I'm an entrepreneur and think tank founder from Berlin, Germany. Um, I founded the Ego Institute, which is a, I would say, classical liberal think tank here in Berlin. And we um, are focusing on how to make people aware of how they can live a freer life, you know, in their daily life. You know, it doesn't have to be the grandiose um, political changes that they should look for, but rather the uh, small changes that they can make in their daily lives to make, live more free and, you know, flourishing. Very nice. And I notice I, I have an article in front of me. Um, I notice that you've written about uh, Germany's green energy policy. It's been three years since I visited Germany. But one thing I noticed is as a country, they are very, very serious about green energy, although it hasn't been all good news regarding that green energy. Talk to me a little bit about the push for green energy in Germany and and why, if even if they're the poster child for the green energy transition, the kid is in trouble, at least at the moment. That's true. That's true in a way. Um, Germany has been the, the so-called poster child for the green, green energy transition, um, mainly due to their investments into solar and wind, um, which are seen as, I would say, the most uh, stereotypical of green energies. Um, the problem with those is that they are at times unreliable. Sometimes the sun is not shining and the wind is not blowing. Um, what we also did um, as a country is we phased out or we at least we limited the time which our nuclear power plants can run. Um, that happened in 2011 and um, following the Fukushima um, accident after the, the tsunami and the earthquake hit Japan, the nuclear power plant there um, had, you know, had a serious emergency and that frightened a lot of people around here and we decided to discontinue nuclear power. Uh, this leads to, um, this leads to um, a situation in which energy prices are very high in Germany. It's actually one of the, the highest in the, in the world. And um, at times, there are, um, we could see energy shortages. So this is why our green energy uh, transition is in big trouble, especially because Germans do not see nuclear power as green energy. Wow. Now, I have to ask, prior to 2011, how was nuclear power working out for Germany? Were, were there complaints? Were people concerned? Or was it, you know, an efficient way to, to provide power, you know, for a first world nation? Well, I would say both. Um, the it was a very it was a very good source and reliable source of energy. Um, but in the in the nineteen seventies, we have to go back to the nineteen seventies actually. Um, to there's a big anti nuclear movement within Germany, and a very influential party now, the Greens, uh, came out of that movement. They formed in uh, nineteen eighty, and they're basically their 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 foundational story. The, the 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 story that they have to kind of perpetuate every time is that they were against nuclear power, and they became very influential after they were. Um, founded not only in parliament but also in pop culture and in, in every in every single part of our society. So the anti-nuclear movement has been very strong in Germany, and um, it has become you know the problem is that the, um, the population has suffered from those high prices and unreliable energy 
ever since. And the Green Party cannot let go of that uh, of that story that they are anti-nuclear and they will never change. Now, the, Germany finds itself in kind of an interesting situation thanks to the Russia-Ukraine conflict and uh, the various sanctions against Russia. What does this mean in terms of for the average German family when it comes to, for instance, heating their home this winter? What are they looking at? Uh, are their costs going to go astronomically up? Exactly. Um, we, in order to make up for the for the lack of power we had by abolishing nuclear, we went and got dependent on Russian gas, Russian gas imports. We actually built even new pipelines to do that. Um, now that Russia attacked Ukraine and is raging war in Ukraine, by the way, I'm actually right now in Kiev. Um, the the um, German government response was to condemn that attack. And Russia, as a response to that and to the international sanctions, um, limited the supply of gas. So right now, um, Germans are afraid of the winter, and the gas prices are going to um, explode in the coming in the coming months. Um, we're talking about a fivefold increase. Holy cow! Fivefold. I I saw a graph the other day that was mind blowing, and it was uh, from Google. It was Google Analytics of how many people in Germany have been searching up the term firewood, and compared to past years, it went for a very long time. Oh, almost nobody searches it. To boom, there was a huge spike in people looking for firewood, which I, I assume everybody's trying to do their best to to deal with the situation, but. Oh, it still sounds like some real unnecessary hardship. Exactly. Uh, a friend of mine and my colleague in, in the Ego Institute is um, very familiar with the uh, situation in forestry. And they they have had um, problems with people stealing wood from the forests for years now. But now it is extreme. Now it is another people um, actually right now in summer preparing for winter um, by, by, by getting wood out of the forest illegally. Ah. So is is that pretty tightly regulated? I mean, you don't just <laughs> don't just grab you know some some down tree and start throwing it in the car. This is Germany. Everything is regulated. Okay, that that would make sense. Let me tell you this, or let me ask you this rather, um, Felix. What would it take for the Green Party to change their tune on on nuclear energy? Obviously, that seems like a like a very um, straightforward way to address the the energy needs of the country can they ever change their tune or does that take all of their legitimacy out from underneath them um yes the problem will be that right now the political pressure is not enough on the greens um we have a majority of germans who want to at least extend the time that we keep our last remaining power plants running those are three and this is roughly 40 percent of our uh, nuclear capacity um, they should, you know, they should run out at the end of this year. But um, the majority of Germans is for, um, you know, extending that time. The Greens are are in the predicament that their their voter base is very much opposed to this extension, and the the public and the public has right now and the media has the job to basically put them under political pressure to um, to extend that. And it has to be. It has to become known that the Greens would be responsible for the major price increase that we're facing, and even for um, some instances of brown and blackouts. Wow. Um, what we're what we're looking at right now is, in my opinion, the most um, the most 
obvious example of a, of a, of a class conflict in a way. Because uh, green voters are usually well off. They're the intellectuals. They're not the ones who are like the handymans or anybody who is really reliant on a lot of energy. They're not in the they're not industrial workers and uh, anything like that. So those are the public servants and the uh, so-called intelligentsia. And they are, in a way, uh, with their political decisions, waging a waging a class war from uh, from above rather than, you know, the other way around. So I have to ask, as as people are feeling the pain this winter, and I don't just mean you know the uh, the trades workers, but uh, I assume this is going to affect just about everybody. If there's enough pain, is it likely that uh, they either uh, ask the Green Party to step aside or simply vote them out of power so that they can move toward more common sense solutions? I didn't see any vaca- any uh, any points where. The, pre- the pressure the pressure must come from 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 the public i do not see any elections coming up which are which are um, important enough for for the greens to take i would say enough punishment in this in this regard uh, to change their minds really um the more the more the prices rise the more the more the pressure will rise and it's yet to be seen if um without those significant elections the pressure can be high enough Okay, Felix, we've got about one minute left here. Let me ask you this. How can people get a better feel for nuclear energy? And I'm, I mean, to make up their minds. I Personally, I think I would be in favor of it. But uh, where can they at least get some solid information about how safe it is versus how safe it isn't and, and then make those decisions based on what they know? I think the problem right now with nuclear energy is that the emer- like the accidents and the emergencies were very highly uh, publicized, but they were never really talked about how um, how bad those were. Um, if you, for example, uh, look at Fukushima and how many people died over there, it is um, it is not even clear that a lot of people died from the radiation itself, but rather from the evacuations and anything like that. So really look into the actual risks that nuclear power has and also look at the stats. The stats, for example, show that per uh, kilowatt hour, um, nuclear power is one of the safest energy sources um, that we have available. So look at look at those and look at the numbers rather than the narratives. Okay. We're talking with Felix Hasse. He is a Young Voices contributor. Felix, where can people follow you on social media? I think I'm most active right now on my, my Twitter account, especially um, in my capacity as a, as a, as a contributor. Um, this is The Free Felix, so The Free Felix, F-E-L-I-X, on Twitter. That's probably the best place to start. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. So glad you could join us today, and I'm happy to welcome yet another new voice to the program. I'd like to welcome Nitu Arnold. Nitu, welcome to the show. Tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Thank you for having me. Uh, My name is Nitu, and I work as a senior research associate at the National Association of Scholars, where we focus a lot on higher education policy. One of the areas of my, uh, one of the areas of focus is uh, higher education finances. Well, that's been on a lot of people's minds here lately. In fact, uh, I think it was just yesterday I was hearing some talk about uh, maybe some targeted student uh, loan debt forgiveness, and uh, that always seems to get people talking. Now, I'm looking at an article that you have written for lawliberty.org 
that's about a novel plan to reduce student debt. And you mentioned that there's actually a court case that could have some impact on this. Would you walk us through that, please? Yes. So my recent article highlights a 1970s Supreme Court case, Griggs versus Duke Power Company, which resulted in the artificial increase in demand for a college degree. Now, before I go into more details uh, of that court case, I think it's important to discuss why college prices have increased in the first place. And it's because there's a high demand for education. And there are a couple of contributing factors here. First, uh, the availability of uh, easy accessibility to student loans has made it easier for so many people to go to college, but it's also given universities a, uh, they don't have a good incentive to lower their costs. They know that uh, when they increase their prices, students can simply turn to the student loans to offset any of those increases. So that's issue number one. And then issue number two is that many employers uh, often require a college degree. And so for many students, they often go to college, not for knowledges for knowledge's sake, but because uh, the college degree is seen as a golden ticket to yep. good jobs. <laughs> so this is where Griggs versus Duke Power Company comes in. And so going back to the, this case, um, this is where it comes back to Griggs versus Duke Power Company. Uh, Duke Power Company had instituted a high school diploma and aptitude tests on the day the Civil Rights Act of 1964 took place. And, uh, you know, as a result, uh, the plaintiffs in the case argued that having such educational requirements uh, fostered racial discrimination. And so that's why this court case was brought up to the Supreme Court. And so the Supreme Court agreed, but they also admitted that they couldn't find any discriminatory intent for Duke Power Company. Um, because they couldn't find that discriminatory intent, the Supreme Court decided to rely on a legal theory known as disparate impact, which uh, disparate impact says that if there are any differential outcomes in policies based on uh, any protected class, such as race, sex, et cetera, that can serve as proof of discrimination. So for many employers, they uh, feared any legal liability as a result of this court case. And that's because if they instituted any uh, tests that resulted in a disparate impact then uh, or dis disparate outcomes, then uh, they, they could be taken to court. And so for many employers, they decided to turn to the college degree as a proxy for intelligence, talent, and skills. Is is the college degree, is that really a, a good signal of, of this person has the right talent and skills, or does it leave something to be desired? Yeah, so I don't think it's the best measure for talent or skills. I can understand why the employers may have thought that a college degree could be a good signal for that. Uh, during the college admissions process, uh, colleges can often filter candidates based on test scores, for example. But how you do on a test and what you learn in college doesn't always equate to uh, vocational success and preparation. And I think what the interesting thing here is that uh, the, the uh, results of Griggs 
uh, actually changed the purpose of higher education. And so I think higher education now tries to have tries to serve two competing missions. On one hand, they try to uh, they try to fulfill the mission of education, but they also try to fulfill this mission of vocational preparation. And so I think in the process they end up they end up diluting the uh, e either the vocational mission or the education mission. And so students end up missing out and it doesn't really help anybody. You point out in your article that th there are other places in life where we can see some disparities, but nobody has really stepped up to say, hey, this needs to be addressed. Uh, for instance, you point out black athletes outnumber all other racial groups in mainstream sports like football and, and basketball. So according to that disparate uh, impact theory, well, we ought to have some quotas in place to make sure that professional sports are being fair, you know, for, for non-black athletes. But we don't see we really don't see a call for that, do we? No, we don't. And I don't think we should because uh, we want the best players, for example, in our sports. And that same logic should apply in jobs, in college admissions. We want people who are better prepared, people who um, can best meet our empl employment needs. They, we, we want the best people on the job. And something like disparate impact doesn't actually goes against those goals. Wow. So, so talk to me about merit-based hiring. Um, obviously, to me, that that makes sense. You're getting the best person for the job, the person who has the skills or has the 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 background to do this job correctly. Um, why don't companies or why did why did companies fear uh, legal liability? Was it this court case that made them wonder? Well, if we don't, you know, have enough representation of uh, this group or that group, we're we're going to be facing some kind of uh, legal action, perhaps. Yes, I think that was the fear that if they implement any test, then that that results in uh, disparities, then uh, they they could be sued or they could be taken to court. So I think that's a big reason for why many of these companies turned to uh, the college degree as a signal. Would more or fewer people take out student loans? if the the need for a degree in order to get their foot in the door for a job was was no longer there oh okay so i don't think that people would be taking out more student loans if uh that degree require if that degree requirement wasn't there and that would just be because uh there would be alternatives to higher education and uh and again, if you can shorten the degree, if it, the the amount it takes to complete the degree program, or if uh, employers are not even having a higher education as a job requirement, then for uh, people who are especially talented, then they could just take the test and, uh, you know, without they could forego a college education in some of those instances. And maybe it would shift the, the balance back towards where colleges and universities are no longer uh, there to act as a massive jobs program, right? Yes, absolutely. I, I don't think uh, universities should necessarily serve as a massive jobs program. That doesn't mean that they don't have any purpose. They can uh, be a great environment for um, for uh, you know discussing interesting ideas and uh, you know, even the craziest ideas and refining them there. And it can also be a good place to meet like-minded 
people or people who are even different from you. But we, we need to separate those two missions of higher education and vocational preparation. Okay, very good. We're talking with Nitu Arnold. She is with Young Voices. And Nitu, tell our listeners where they can follow your work and where they can find you on social media. Yes, so uh, I post a lot of my stuff on Twitter. So you can follow me at N-E-E-T-U underscore Arnold. Very good. Thank you so much for being our guest. I hope we get to talk again soon. Yes, thank you. And we are back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome Noah Kogali. Did I did I even come close there on your last name, Noah? That's close enough. Close enough. Close enough. Okay. You can help me with the pronunciation. I won't take offense. How, how do you say your last <laughs> no, name? Right. Uh, Kogali. I've heard as many different pronunciations as there could possibly be. So, yeah, it kind of goes over my head now. All right. And you're, you're checking in today from, from Scotland, which is good because we're going to be talking a little bit about the Scottish independence movement. But before we go to the topic, first of all, tell us just a little bit about yourself, about who you are and what you do. So, I'm, yeah, no, Kigali. I'm a local local politician so we deal with all the all the really fun stuff looking after the roads bin collections education um all the stuff that people can see out of their window um but also do lots of political commentary as well um that's that's the real passion is you know, being able to look outside and, and and talk about what's going on and you know i like the sound of my own voice basically well that's good no you're you're in the right business then now it, it wasn't so long ago i just had a conversation with another young voices contributor about uh, the the race for uh the uk's next prime minister and you know i i know that in america we tend to get kind of tunnel vision about uh, what's going on in our own elections and whatnot but um Talk to me a little bit about uh, what this race for UK Prime Minister means for the Scottish independence movement. Yeah, it's odd because we operate a very different political system to you, obviously. But this this final runoff for Conservative Party leadership that will that will lead to the next PM feels very presidential for us. And that's meant that obviously there's been a huge amount more scrutiny on the individual characters than you'd normally get. We'd normally be talking a lot about about the parties and their positions. Um, but, you know, it, it's quite rare and it, it's quite interesting. It's new that we get to talk about individual policy positions for two people from the same party. So especially in Scotland, that's really, really important. So as a basis, it's really, really key to remember that they're trying to appeal to Conservative Party members, not not everybody. So first and foremost, to, to become PM, they have to get the votes of people that are, by and large, pro the union, anti-Scottish independence. And that's going to be the main bit of rhetoric that they talk about. So there's been lots and lots of posturing, lots of different tacks taken. It's a really long process. So I think we started with Liz Truss, who is one of the candidates, essentially saying she was going to ignore Nicola Sturgeon, who is the the separatist leader um, of the Scottish Parliament, which is one of the devolved administrations. Um, And she's kind of moved beyond just saying she would completely ignore her, which didn't get the best reception, um, to saying that she'd make sure that Westminster and the UK government really, you know, revamped its presence in Scotland. And it wasn't just a case of devolve powers and forget and that you know Westminster and her and her possible administration if that happened would be really really present in Scotland so it seems and you can correct me if I'm wrong but I I seem to remember a few years ago there was a pretty 
there was a pretty good amount of talk regarding Scottish independence and and a move towards a vote towards independence. This would have been um, around the the time of Brexit, I believe. Um, am I remembering this right? I'm sorry, I wasn't I wasn't yeah, paying as close of attention then. It's something that comes up a fair amount. It's it's basically the SNP, who are the the lead ruling party in Scotland. It's basically their only talking point. That's that is the main crux. And we're essentially a one issue party. Um, so they bring it up every possible occasion they can. Um, there was a referendum, obviously, in in 2014, which you know, in which the Scottish people decided they were going to remain in the UK. And ever since then, basically every six months, the Scottish Nationalist Party decide again that it's time for a next referendum. Um, so since then, you know, the Leave side have never really had a consistent lead in the polls. Um, it looked for the entire time essentially like probably between 52 and 54 percent of Scots, Scots want to remain in the UK. Um, and that's probably been the case the entire time. But when it's looked like the union may, you know, maybe on its last legs, maybe a little bit shaky, has especially been in the last couple of years with Brexit and the massive, you know, massive outcry from from lots of Scottish people who voted Remain that felt like they were being pulled out of the EU and Boris Johnson, essentially. Those two Bs were essentially every single argument the SNP tried to use for, for, for a good few years there about why Scotland need to be in, needed to be independent. And they're gone now. So the next steps for them as a movement will be really, really interesting. Wow. How, how long has that uh, Scottish independence movement been going on? And I, I'm, I'm ready to hear the answer, maybe hundreds of years, perhaps. Well, it's been probably an underlying thing for the entire entire time that the union existed. So you're looking genuinely hundreds of years, but it really starts to rear its head again in mainstream politics, probably at the you know at the end of the '90s when um, devolution across the UK, so the regional parliaments for for Wales, Northern Ireland, Scotland, really. Um, came to a fore and, and they started to be given some you know, significant control. And that was designed, I think, by the Labour Party that was in government at the time. They thought it would put an end to talk of, to talk of independence because they were giving controls back locally. Um, but that's not really what happened. They kind of gave a platform for these, you know, these nationalist parties, these quite radical movements, gave them a large, large mouthpiece. And that's essentially where we've ended up is, you know, we've got a nationalist a nationalist government in Scotland that speaks for maybe 40, 45% of the population um, consistently calling to break up the country that, that they reside in. Wow. So talk to me about uh, how how is Scotland doing as far as uh, whether it's as, as part of the union or just, you know, on its own economically, or are they on, on fairly solid ground? Do, do they find that, uh, you know, they, they need the, this union uh, to, to stay in, in place? Yeah, I think every every serious economist economist in the UK and Scotland would probably say that it would be a very, very, very bad economic idea for Scotland to leave the union. Um, and essentially, the argument for separatism and for you know Scottish nationalists is mostly an emotional one. So I think pre-COVID, it's probably been thrown up a little bit in the air now. But pre-COVID, if Scotland had left the union, its its deficit would have been something like thirteen percent, which is would have been you know the highest in Europe by some margin. Um, and not a great idea for a country that, it, first of all, would need to establish its own currency, its own military, its own health service, everything. Um, but where it is now is still not a great situation. So at the moment, if you go to Edinburgh, which is you know, capital of Scotland, it is literally overflowing with rubbish. It absolutely sinks. And that's because essentially the SNP have slashed, slashed the budgets for local councils and everyone's gone on strike. And you're going to see across Scotland, these strikes really ramp up because the Scottish nationalists have decided that 
it is them that is, you know, the all-powerful, all-conquering um, party and, and nobody else should have any influence. And it's led to essentially everybody striking and, and the country falling apart a little bit. It sounds like this might be a really difficult place to find middle ground between the two opposing sides. Is there any such possibility? Uh, there, there is probably, there's always people you, you'd hope that the reside in the middle ground when that really dies is when, is when you end up with a country on a, on a really, really dangerous path. But last week, there was uh, the two Conservative leadership candidates came to Scotland to have a husting. So it's almost like a debate. I think it's probably quite a British thing um, where they both go and have their own five minutes. They both get questioned individually, but it's one big event. And outside the Scottish nationalists were throwing eggs using words I don't think I can use on the radio mm. <laughs> um, and being intensely disruptive. And it was really quite obvious then that there is a vitriol there. There's a hatred there um, that is really coming from one side um, that looks like it's pushing people on the middle ground back towards the union. And to be honest, for most unions, unionists is is probably quite helpful because they are doing their cause real, real damage with the with the aggression, with the violence. Um, but, you know, you've got to hope that there is still middle, middle ground there because the day that dies is the day that every country is headed on a very dangerous path. So I'm curious, what exactly do the nationalists see as as the the goal when, when if, if scotland were to achieve its independence what uh, what is the payoff to them it's purely an emotional thing so they they firmly believe that scotland should just be its own independent country and nothing else matters so it would you know essentially me in my own in my own little world if, if I thought that I'd be better at ruling it than anybody else, essentially like a child, um, that's what that's what I'd be setting up my mission to do. But the really interesting thing is here is that there's lots of suspicions that leading Scottish nationalists don't actually want it to happen. And this is just a really, really easy emotional argument to make electorally that will keep you in power forever. It's really important to remember that if independence ever happened, the Scottish Nationalist Party would disappear overnight because that is the only thing they've ever set out to do. So it's not actually necessarily in their interest <laughs> for Scottish independence to ever happen. So they would they would essentially uh, work themselves right out of a job. Yeah, and and SNP um, MPs have been saying that over the past couple of days that if Scottish Scottish independence ever happened, they would leave right away. So you know it, there has been allegations they are basically leading their supporters, stringing them along, and this is one big con to stay in power. Um, and it, you know I might be overly cynical to suggest that was exactly what was going on, but there may be some truth in that. Okay, Noah, we've got about thirty seconds left here. Uh, if people want to remain, or if people want to become rather better informed on this issue, what are some of the sources that you trust? The Times and the Scotsman are probably the best two. They're both both really balanced on both sides of the debate, um, but also really, really fantastically sourced. And especially in politics, as you know, as messy as up here, well sourced stories are, are probably the best thing. Okay, uh, we're talking with Noah Kogali. Again, I'm, I'm doing my best with your last name there. Nice enough. Where can people find you? Where can they follow you on social media? So lots of Scotch politics on Twitter. Um, so Kigali, Noah, I'll spell Kigali because it's just awful. Um, so Noah, obviously, and then K-H-O-G-A-L-I. Very good. Thanks so much for being my guest. I hope we talk again soon. Thank you very much. Welcome back. 
This is our fourth and final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices today. Very happy to welcome Caden Rosenbaum to the program. Caden, this is your first time aboard, so first of all, good to meet you. Uh, tell us just a little bit you. about yourself. Hi, so uh, my name is Caden Rosenbaum, and I am the Tech and Innovation Policy Analyst at the Libertas Institute. Uh, for those of you not in Utah, that's Libertas. Um, and it's based out of Lehigh, Utah. And I've been there for a little under a year now, focusing on tech and innovation policy. Okay. I'm looking at an article that you wrote for Real Clear Markets about uh, how consumers will be the winners from Amazon's iRobot purchase. And I have to admit, yeah. I don't have the first clue what iRobot is. Can you <laughs> can you bring me up to speed on what that means? Sure. So, I don't know that most people know uh, what iRobot is in general, because most people know it from its product name, which is Roomba. Right, the the little robot vacuums that mop and, and sweep our floors and vacuum up all the crumbs from our kids when we're away. Uh, iRobot is the one that started the whole movement towards having a Roomba in your home, not vacuuming as much, letting a robot do it for you, all the convenience. Right. Okay. Hey, I'm down. Look, I have two dogs, <laughs> and, yeah. and and I, I don't think I don't think the the little vacuum robot that we have is is a Roomba brand, but. Man, that thing saves me so much time of chasing dog hair you know, around. Wow. I've got a similar problem. I've got a, a lab mix that sheds like crazy and a Pomeranian that sheds like crazy. And I have a Roomba and a Scuba on every floor just to make sure I don't have to waste any time cleaning up after them. Yeah, every half day or so. Now I don't feel so bad about being with the times. Normally I don't care if I'm no, trendy no, no. or not, but this one saves me a lot of labor. So I understand there were there were some uh, misgivings some people had about Amazon uh, buying iRobot. What was the concern there? So there's a lot of misgivings in general about most of the big tech companies uh, for various reasons. Amazon's big gripe is most commonly that it's too big. Um, there are lots of monopoly concerns that come along with being a big company in the market today. And the monopoly concerns of the home device market, you know, the smart home device market, is very relevant for this purchase because it's buying a smart device that would also go in your home, uh, one that many people have, including you and I, although we may have different brands. Uh, and then there was there were concerns about uh, data privacy, right? This robot is able to map your home. The Roomba is able to map your home. And in some cases, if you've opted in, if you said, yes, you may collect this data uh, explicitly, then the device can actually uh, ping you or, or ping devices in your home that uh, and tell you where it's at. And the big concern is that Amazon will use that data to market more products at you. Um, but the the misgivings have really two big holes. One is that the data privacy concerns aren't as founded as they might be uh, for a smaller company because Amazon has a lot of a lot of skin in the game, and it must comply with a lot of data privacy laws that mean if they're going to collect that kind of data for that kind of use, they have to give a lot a lot of consent um, to consumers. That's great because that means that that found, that argument is unfounded. Um, and on the monopoly concern, it's really hard to figure out what a market is in general. So the smart home devices market, just adding a robot vacuum is probably not going to move the needle significantly towards giving Amazon a monopoly over your home, right? Um, but those were 
relevant, I think, concerns to, to put forth. I think anytime a big acquisition like this happens, we should all at least consider them. Um, and so while I didn't buy them in the end, they were still relevant, still something to consider. Now, you actually point out there are a couple of other examples where uh, Amazon made acquisitions or, or you know, had, had a very dominant position in the market, and it actually turned out for the better. For instance, talk to me about Ring doorbells. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you've ever seen uh, one of those camera events where the Ring doorbell is on your, your front door or someone's front door, and they have a video of something bizarre happening, maybe somebody has knocked on the door and is trying to sell drugs or trying to scam you, and they just stay on the Ring doorbell. Or there are situations where uh, a plant exploded in Texas, I think, and the Ring doorbells all caught it, and you could see people coming out in their underwear and just yelling, what is happening? What is happening? Right. <laughs> Um, Ring doorbell has become a really important home security tool for a lot of people. Every time someone comes to your door, they ring the little doorbell, the ring takes a recording of them, and that's great for a lot of people who maybe aren't home all the time, or they may be home and don't want to come to the door for uh, security reasons. Maybe they feel threatened whenever someone comes to the door. Ring doorbell gives a wall of separation where you can talk to the person at the door. You could, even if you have a smart home lock, unlock the door for a babysitter or a pet sitter. Um, and it allows you to monitor who comes in and out of your house. That's really important. Amazon bought Ring uh, a while back, uh, back in 2018. And one of the improvements that Amazon made right off the bat was lowering prices. The Ring doorbell has been great since it acquired it, um, but it, it's always been you know around two ninety nine for for one of these. And Amazon lowered the price here recently. That same the base model of a twenty twenty version, which is improved. It's a newer year. It doesn't have some of the malfunctions. Is only a hundred bucks. Wow. And that's not even Prime Day, right? And so, what, the the improvements that Amazon has made first is price, but also in improving quality. They they now have four K cameras. They now have Wi Fi enabled. Um, systems that let you check in and take little clips. Um, Amazon doesn't just buy things to acquire the market. It also buys things to take in talent and improve those products and make them not only more affordable, but better for consumers. So, Kate, And that's only the first. What might that mean then for for owners or for people who will eventually own an iRobot, uh, you know, Roomba vacuum? Right. Well, speaking from experience, the Roomba and the Scuba have, I would say, uh, a product life. Uh, after about two years of heavy dog hair <laughs> and regular use, the, the the product does need some refurbishing, right? I, I have to take mine apart regularly, almost semi-annually, uh, get all the hair out of there and replenish the brushes, buy new brushes and a new little swivel brush thing to go in there. And I think one of the improvements that Amazon will probably make is to uh, improve how long a Roomba can be used. Or if not that, at least lower the price so that when you go to buy a new Roomba, because yours has been severely infested with dog hair, uh, it's affordable. And it's not a prohibitive expense where you just think, uh, no thanks, I'll just hand vacuum from now on. Uh, that's one improvement. The other improvement that I foresee is using Amazon's logistics program. Right. What it uses in its warehouse to deliver products to and fro, I can see that improving the maps that the robot uses. Because if you have a robot now, you know, a Roomba now, you know that the thing will bump in and off of things. It'll move chairs if they're too lightweight and it 
can sometimes fall off of steps. I think that that's going to be improved in the future uh, through Amazon's acquisition. So people shouldn't immediately, you know, get nervous about, ah, they're getting a monopoly. Now they're going to, you know, just stick it to everybody right. because they have that monopoly. In, in in many cases, it appears Amazon doesn't just operate as a monopoly, but but they'll take something and improve it and actually make it more available than it was before. Exactly. And in some cases, uh, that, that improvement, that acquisition improves a lot of things, right? Like, uh, Amazon purchased Whole Foods, for example, in 2018. And since then, we have Amazon Fresh now, where we can order groceries inside that sometimes come from Amazon. Uh, if you get the wrong package from Amazon, maybe you ordered the wrong size of shoe, you take your shoes to uh, Whole Foods instead of having to deal with a UPS and a shipping label. Um, they also acquired Alexa back in 1999 as when it was just an add-on to a browser. And nowadays, that's a personal assistant. I'm honestly surprised mine hasn't gone off since I said its name. Um, and really, what Amazon could do with iRobot is more than just a consumer product. It can use it in its warehouses um, for e-commerce and fulfillment, meaning it could use the experience and the technical knowledge of iRobot's engineers to improve warehouses. And then also, as it builds out its delivery programs, its autonomous delivery programs, it can use the same logistics and mapping to deliver out to consumers. And that's going to be a really great asset for Amazon and for consumers, a really great convenience tool. Caden, one of the things I like about your approach is this is definitely a glass half full approach. I know some oh, people, yeah. and, and I would have been this way myself at one point, you know, what? Robots taking our jobs. Oh, no. You know, what are we going to do? But um, <laughs> thankfully, I've had some people who are very good who, who helped me understand, actually, that's going to free people up to do jobs that matter even more than whatever it is the robot's right. doing. And listen, someone has to service the robots. They're not fully contained. They will break down, and that creates tons of jobs in the process. All right, we're talking with Caden Rosenbaum. He is a Young Voices contributor as well as the Technology and Innovation Policy Analyst at Libertas Institute, based in Lehigh, Utah. Caden, uh, where can people follow your work? Where can they find you on social media? So they can find me first and foremost at libertas.org, which is L-I-B-E-R-T-A-S.org. Uh, and secondly, my Twitter is going to be the best place to find me, and that's just at Caden Rosenbaum. Very good. Great to visit with you. I hope we get a chance to talk again here soon. Same to you. Thanks for having me.